A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by the Shapiro family of Los Angeles. Before we get to the topic of Jewish dress in in uh, modern Jewish history, just want to read a couple of uh, feedback letters from recent episodes. I had a couple of weeks ago an episode on the Sefer Nefesh Chaim of Rabbi Chaim Velazhener and um, and its role in in the history of the of the Hasidic movement and the opposition to the Hasidic movement. And a interesting, I guess is the right word, a somewhat odd uh, a letter. Um, I'm just going to read a short expert, uh, ex- excerpt, excuse me, um, about, uh, I mentioned that Reb Chaim of Elijah had not, uh, had not signed on any of the um, cherims, any of the excommunications um, about uh, Hasidim. And um, so th- Part of the letter I received said that this letter writer, this listener, heard that the reason is, as he heard from Rabbi Yosef Buxbaum, that he knew the handwriting of Rabbi Chaim Velazhener, as he was a big expert, or the biggest expert in Kisveyad, and manuscripts, and the handwriting from the Cherem is Rabbi Chaim's handwriting. So if he wrote it, he did not need to sign it. That's um, pretty... I don't know, pretty wild, uh, I gotta say, because it's not supported uh, uh, by any of the evidence we know of at the time. In other words, there would have had to have been some sort of corroborative evidence that uh, that that he's the one who wrote it, that someone said that he wrote it, that someone wrote that he wrote it, that someone testified that he. I don't know. It just seems uh, seems to be uh, to me, at least, uh, it's just me, speculation and quite far fetched. Um, so I would dismiss it. Um, I had a recent episode about the Dvar of Ram, of Ram Dev Berkana Shapiro, the Rav of Kovna. And um, fascinating. A couple of letters about him in the Kovna ghetto. Very, very interesting. One um, listener wrote that his son writes in the introduction to his Sefer that his father would not cut his beard. He was even willing to get killed, at least not to touch his beard which 
he was able to do, and he and the Nazis uh, did not cut off his beard. And his son writes this, I looked it up, explicitly in the introduction to the books, an incredible dedication of the Dvar Rum to not have his beard cut off. Another um, another letter about him in the ghetto, also fascinating. This is a son of a survivor of the Kovna ghetto wrote me this. My father told me that handbills were plastered throughout the Kovna ghetto, which publicized a psak by Rabbi Kahana Shapiro, which obligated the ghetto inhabitants to work for the Germans on Yom Kippur as a matter of pikuach nefesh. A reference to the story of the handbills is found in a 2014 book titled The Clandestine History of the Kovna Jewish Ghetto Police. Notwithstanding the psak, my father simply could not refrain, excuse me, could not fathom working on Yom Kippur and did not report for work that day. Very interesting. Okay, so also want to mention that it's the end of the contest of the trivia quiz uh, of in, that the, in our column for the record in Mishpacha magazine. So I hope that you all uh, entered your uh, into into the uh, and you know into got got good scores and got into the raffle and we're going to get some prizes and I'm going to do some follow up in the coming episodes. I'm going to try to analyze some of the results and some of the questions and and talk about it a little bit. So stay tuned for that as well. And of course, um, if you want to be in touch with me about any sponsorships or lectures of the sort, then please uh, feel free to do so, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com. Today's topic is Jewish dress in history. It's a big topic, and it's possibly big enough for two episodes, maybe even three. It's anything we don't get to in this time. We'll have a future opportunity. Um, so uh, don't get nervous if we don't uh, if we don't get to it. Um, so, and also, if you want a future episode dedicated to this topic of Jewish dress and fashion throughout history, then uh, you can dedicate a future episode and be in touch with me about that sponsorship uh, as well. It's as huge, I mentioned, as, as, as it's ancient. It's not just modern Jewish history. This is throughout the ages. And it's we know that the geographical spread and the chronological range of the styles of Jewish fashion Throughout history is very diverse, and it goes from anywhere, at any time, in any century, in any country that Jews lived in. It's a topic for everywhere, literally, and that's why there's really so much to talk about. And I'm going to try to keep it focused on uh, specific areas and times. You know, you have in 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 the in you see in Rembrandt's uh, paintings of of the Dutch Jewish community, who are in many of the wealthy uh, uh, patrons and ones who commissioned Rembrandt to paint their their portrait was. Dutch Jews living in Amsterdam in the 16th century. Um, so that's, and they have a very distinctive style of dress, which is similar to Dutch dress at the time, but also uh, Jewish in its own way. And it's vastly different than, for instance, traditional Yemenite dress, um, which is different than medieval German or medieval Spanish Jewish dress. So each each one has its as its time. So, and also the, these type of uh, episodes also draw a lot of feedback. So I'm looking forward to that feedback, and we'll incorporate that into future uh, installments of this topic as well. There's actually a letter I got from a lawyer, loyal and dedicated listener who, who when I mentioned to him that I'd be doing this episode. So he writes to me as follows. I know there's a lot on this topic, and I'm sure you'll cover as much as you're able. But if possible, please include these few items because I use them. A black hat fedora, a kapata, that's the Lubavitch version of a bekecha, a black velvet yarmulke, jackets for the weekday and Shabbos for many, 
And even as a bacher in yeshiva, I wondered how the hat and jacket became the equivalent to eating matzah on Pesach. And that was, that was what he wrote. So I don't know if I'll get specifically to those. Hopefully we'll touch on it a little bit. Um, today, of course, the type of yarmulke one wears, at least in Israel, it's probably less so in, in, in less tense uh, Jewish societies. But in, it, it, it's, uh, the type of yarmulke one wears defines your religious affiliation. It even defines your political affiliation. And whether I should be friends with you or not, it's a statement. Um, you know, you have the knitted yarmulke and a velvet yarmulke. You have a big one, you have a small one, you have leather, you have Hasidic different styles of yarmulkes and colors, and, and it gets very exciting. This is, of course, not to meant to be an exhaustive uh, or comprehensive overview. It's just some of the thoughts that I came up with on the topic. So if you're expecting something completely comprehensive, I hope you're not too disappointed. I also won't be discussing too much, a little bit, I'll touch on it here and there, of female Jewish fashion this time around, maybe in a future episode. Of course, it's a fascinating topic, maybe for another time. So the primary focus is on male fashion, but I will touch here and there on on female Jewish fashion as well, traditional. Uh, Primarily, we're going to focus on the last couple of centuries, last two, three hundred years, and of course, primarily Eastern European, as is in general, the general theme of Jewish history, some ways, though not exclusively, but, uh, you know, I'll try to get around as much as we can. There's a certain anachronism that goes on when we talk about Jewish dress throughout the ages, is that we assume that any dress that's worn by Jews today was worn by them throughout history. And that reminds me of a story of a family member of mine, actually. His, he sent his his uh, children to a yeshiva that was kind of Haimish, and they had the some of the administration and some of the rabbim in the yeshiva were of a Hasidic background, and therefore his son in first grade came home with a a booklet on the parsha where Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Hakayin were in the desert and they're wearing strimals, and Dasan and Aviram, who were the bad guys, they were wearing hats and jackets. Now, of course, this family member of mine wore a hat and jacket, and, you know, the Rebbe in the yeshiva wore a strimal. So he called up the principal to complain. He said, you're trying to teach my kid that his father is like Dustin and Aviram. And, you know, the idea is not only that, you know, that it's, it's, there was lousy education in his opinion, but also that we assume that, of course, Maishu Rabbeinu had to have worn a strimal. And I remember there was a joke when I was growing up, I don't know, might have might have developed differently today, but that they said, how do we know that Maishu Rabbeinu wore a strimal? Because it says... In the Pasuk explicitly, Vayelech Moshe. Moshe went. Moshe at Gigangin on a strimal. You think Moshe Rabbeinu would go without a strimal? So of course he wore one. So we assume uh, that, uh, that, that it's been like this throughout history because we're a traditional and conservative society and nothing ever changes. Um, of course today, things did change because it's actually appropriate to mention it's almost exactly a year ago that the original lockdowns uh, began with coronavirus so it's about a year since then that this corona changed everything because now no one gets dressed altogether. So there is no fashion anymore. So that's appropriate to discuss what was in history. And of course, the question is, is it Jewish fashion or is it Jews who are involved in fashion? And Jews have always been involved in the textile industry. You know, people like, um, just for example, Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren, who is Ralph Lifshitz. Now, Calvin Klein's ancestors came from Galicia and Ralph Lauren's ancestors came from Pinsk. In, in, in Lithuania and Belarus. So they both grew up on the Grand Concourse in, in the Bronx, which is, that neighborhood is, of course, uh, 
you know, if uh, anyone likes the Bronx, we can talk about it in the Jewish uh, American, Great American Jewish History series, which is going to be starting again soon. So those are they're they're big big names in fashion, and they're Jews, but that's not Jewish fashion. What we're talking about today is Jewish distinctive dress. Um, what today would be referred to as, you know, uh, where, where 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 you know where, where yeshiva guys get their clothing. So, so Sims Bash is is Jewish dress, or Century Twenty One, or Emporio Suit Supply in Israel. It's in the Geula neighborhood. When I was growing up in Muncie, we used to go to this elderly Holocaust survivor, Mrs. Wenger. She had the suits, so that's Jewish dress. But what I really want to get into is the the history of it, what goes behind it. Um, there's three aspects to explore with traditional Jewish dress. One but one is the fact that it's primarily a knockoff of a copy of non-Jewish dress. The Jews were always influenced by their surroundings, and and uh, primarily they went with the general trends and fashions uh, of their of their surrounding countries and societies, the culture. That that's that's the that's the basic theme. The second point is that there were almost always Jewish variations. There was distinctive Jewish Shabbos clothing. There was modest attire, tznius issues that caused it to be slightly different. There was also very often decrees, governmental decrees, that said the Jews had to wear a special hat, had to wear a special uh, sign on their clothing. Of course, we're familiar with the Nazi era, with the yellow star, but many societies in, in medieval times, they had Jews wear distinctive markings on their clothing, and that became a Jewish form of dress. The third point to emphasize, which is, which is more related to what we're going to talk to today, um, is, is the fact that the challenges of modernity and in the end of the 19th century, the early 20th century, uh, so the rise of Jewish fundamentalism and the onslaught of modernity, and those challenges caused the, the external expressions of Jewish identity to become very strong. And, and, and the way you dress defined who you were because the community felt threatened. And especially that ad, what added to that was the Holocaust, that anything that came from Eastern Europe was now frozen in time because it's holy, because there are martyrs, because it's a vanished world. So anything from that world is, is elevated in status, and therefore we can't change it. So both because of the challenges of modernity and the decades leading up to the Holocaust, so dress became a very important value in the Jewish community, in the traditional Jewish community, and especially because of the Holocaust and the decimation of that world, and therefore the whole status of any symbolism from that world becomes elevated, and therefore that, that influences how we dress until this very day. But the golden rule is, and I want to emphasize it, is that basically almost all Jewish fashion is knockoffs, is copies of non-Jewish fashion with a slight Jewish twist. Sometimes um, it's what the non-Jews forced them to wear, and that became traditional. Other times it was just copying what they wore, and eventually gave it a, a bit of a, a, a Jewish flavor. And oftentimes the non-Jewish style permeated the Jewish ghetto at a much later de- date, often when it was already out of style in its place of origin, and then ex- it extended much later in the Jewish community, as can be expected in a conservative religious society. So garb is a uniform. You know that in sports they wear a uniform, in armies, Boy Scouts, and in, and uh, and that goes for Jewish traditional dress as well. In, in Egypt, uh, almost by Pesach now, they were redeemed because of Jewish dress. That's what the that's what the tradition teaches us. That's the Chazal say that they they kept a distinctive Jewish dress. So it has cultural and historic value, even religious value, 
though often it was imposed by external factors and always influenced by them. In fact, I mentioned Pesach and the Haggadah. So the, his two other points, the Hassan Seifer, who was one of the fighters for, against modernity in Hungary in, uh, in the 1800s, early 1800s. So he said that he pointed out that it, uh, that it says when they, that they were going to take, when they left Mitzrayim, when they left Egypt, they were going to take the clothes from the Egyptians as part of their salary, as part of taking away the gold from the Egyptians. They also took their clothing. But he, he points out that the Pasuk says, Vesamtem al you're going to put it on your children. He says, why are they going to put it on their children? Why can't they wear it themselves? So reflecting the trends in his day and age, the German and, 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 and the fashions in the, in the Austrian Empire, he said, because the Mitzrayim were non-Jews, they were modern, they were modern, and the Hobbenzegigangen mit kurz, they went with short clothing. So, you know, short jackets, so they couldn't wear it for themselves because they had to wear long. So, but it fit, it fit their children. It was long for their children. The adult Egyptian clothing would be for the children. So you see how the history comes, uh, you know, in that challenge of modernity. I remember Rabbi, Rabbi Beryl Wine, uh, pointed out to me a few times that in many ancient Haggadahs, he's examined the illustrations in Haggadahs through the ages. And almost always when it depicts the four sons. So almost always the wicked son is, is depicted with the prevailing non-Jewish or modern fashion. That was the, the expression of the, of, of how the wicked son looks. Um, but it is a uniform. You know, when you go to a formal ceremony, if you go to, to the Tony's, uh, uh, awards, you have to wear a tuxedo. You have to, have you have to conform to a certain atmosphere that that's in the surrounding, and the same goes through uh, through a, a Jewish society. Also, of course, at the Tonys, even if you're a seat filler, you have to wear a, a tuxedo. Who and then sometimes the seat filler even wins a Tony, but that's another story. So it's important to understand the underlying principle. Every society, not just Jewish society, fashion is a strong statement of identity. It's a facet of identity. It's a statement of who you are. There's also a technology factor. You know, sometimes in Europe, people might have been, before the war, poorer, but they may have had nicer clothes than today in 21st century United States or Israel because they were handmade, and the handmade might have been better quality. So, so they, maybe not, you know, so, so, so there's, there's, there's other external factors as well. So if we go to the 19th century, also want to know, how did distinctive Hasidic dress develop? So... There's different nuances again in, in each dynasty, but um, but it developed over time. Traditional Jewish dress uh, eventually, like I said before, becomes frozen because of of the onslaught of on traditions. So we we keep traditional and a conservative dress, and because of the great crisis uh, uh, facing the Hasidic movement in uh, in the uh, early 20th century. And and uh, and and the Hasidic movement turns towards fundamentalism, and it becomes a very dress becomes a very strong uh, border uh, of where the community is. And um, and I remember um, I remember uh, I, I I was privileged to study under for a time Professor Marcin Marcin Vajinsky, who describes this a lot. He he explains uh, a lot about Hasidic dress in the, in the early nineteenth century. All, all, you know, non-Hasidic rabbis, misnagdim, even maskilim, uh, and rabbis, they all wore kolpiks and strimals in the 19th century. It was common 
dress in the Russian Empire, even in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was not distinctive Hasidic dress. It was traditional Jewish dress of, uh, of 18th century, 19th century Europe. Um, so what made it Hasidic dress at what point? So you have a very interesting story. In 1846, there was what's known in, in, in Jewish history as the Xeras Hamalbushim. <coughs> Excuse me. The, um, the uh, dress decrees, which lasted till 1854, but even beyond, um, was mainly in central Poland but it was in other areas of the Russian Empire as well. And uh, they, d- there was a decree against wearing Jewish dress. And what are they going to do? So the many many of the great Rebbes, many of the great uh, leaders and Sadikim, they said, no, we have to have Mesir Snefesh, Yihorek Val Yavor, this is Jewish dress, this is, this is our identity, we have to risk our lives for traditional Jewish dress. But there was options. The, the, excuse me. The, op- the government gave options to, you can choose. You can either choose a European bourgeois dress, a more modern dress, or you could choose traditional Russian peasant dress, uh, fashion. Which, um, so in the uproar that ensued, many of the Hasidic uh, communities adopted the Russian dress because that was the lesser of two evils. That allowed them to retain their beards, that allowed them to retain long coats and fur hats, and, this is also important, it wasn't common in central Poland at the time, where Garen and Varka, and Alexander, and all these other dynasties were developing. Um, so Jews could remain distinct, even, even uh, you know, they weren't even around so many Russian peasants, which was more uh, east in, in, in the Pale, not in central Poland. Um, but Jewish dress eventually evolves into Hasidic dress. In the late 19th century, like I said, the crisis of modernity, the need for distinctiveness, um, there's, it's a means of collective identity during this time of crisis. And it's also to project uh, uh, um, to the outside world um, the 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 emergence of a of you know it's a stigmatization where which we don't want to get we don't we don't want to get rid of we want to get rid of excuse me we want to get rid of free riders we're establishing barriers um, for the community and it's going to be an embarrassment for outsiders to wear our dress and we only want people who are strongly committed this gives strength internal strength to the core. And it's strengthening the ranks. Anyone who removes the dress is outside the community. This, of course, becomes even more pronounced during the urbanization following World War I. Because now you're in a big city. You want to spot someone a block away in your store or in, 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 in the park. He's part of us. He's not part of us. right? And it's a distinctive dress that preserves it in an urban, urban setting. So that's, um, that's very important. Uh, that's... Uh, and there's also the question of expense, which, which uniform dress is also not affordable at the time. So it doesn't become completely uniform till the post-war. Um, so not everyone wore the, the distinctive Hasidic dress, but it, it's kind of uh, a gradual. So the, um, and in different, different dynasties develop their own nuances. You know, one of the other things that, that Wojcicki points out is that, uh, is that Hasidic fashion has preserved imperial borders of the 19th century. In other words, uh, Hasidic dynasties today, they, they, they come from Galicia, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, pre-World War I. They'll wear similar types of dress. If they come from the Russian Empire or parts of Poland, they'll wear different. And, and, and literally, they're probably the only people in the world who have been able to preserve political borders 
of the 19th century through the way they dress in 2021 across the ocean in Williamsburg or in Israel. Um, it's a fascinating uh, phenomenon. Um, in, in Poland, the Hasidim did not wear strimals, they wore spudiks. And all Polish Hasidim, wasn't just Garos, any, any uh, Hasid, Hasid, uh, Hasidic dynasty in Poland, if it was Majitz or, or Kajnitz or Radomsk or Sochachev, uh, uh, even Novominsk, which was imported from Belarus, but settled down in Poland, so they adopted the Polish dress. You know, the Gera Hasidim, they, they would tuck their pants, their, their pants into their socks and became a distinctive part of their uniform. And I mentioned in another episode that perhaps it was because of the mud. That was, that was a joke that they said. Who knows if it's really true? In Galicia, further south, they had a different style dress. They, in fact, the, in bells, the children wore a distinctive, or still wear a distinctive cap it, because it was a decree that at one point the government forced the Jews to wear that type of cap, and they decided to adopt it as a badge of pride, that this is what the children will wear in honor of Shabbos. So they took something that was supposed to be shameful, and they transformed it in a creative way into a badge of pride. There's a story um, at a, a Bell's wedding. There was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Nachum Tversky, who was from the Shpikov dynasty, which comes from Skver, comes from Chernobyl, and he married into the Bell's family, he married a daughter of the Bell's Rebbe. Eventually was a rabbi in Ravaruska, and he was killed by the Nazis. Um, but he was going through a struggle at the time, and he wrote this incredible confession to the Yiddish writer Anski in, in Warsaw, to, to, to Denizen, Denizen, in, in Warsaw. And he complains there about how the Bell's dress, and in general, Hasidim in Galicia, they wear a very different type of dress than what the Ukrainian and Chernobyl dynasty, uh, uh, they, they dress much more nicer, much more refined. And he says the Bell's Galicia dress is, is longer and the, the sleeves are long and it's big and baggy and, and he didn't like it. And he's very critical of the way they dress in Galicia. So you see, even within the internal, uh, within the different dynasties, different areas, they each have their already their distinct, uh, uh, dress. We know that throughout the, first hundred years, perhaps longer, for a large portion of the history of the Hasidic movement, the tzaddikim of the movement wore white. And it was considered, if you wore someone white, if wore, he, was, he was a tzaddik, he was a Hasidic leader. Eventually that changed. Um, Vizhnitz, which was a Hungarian-Romanian Hasidic group, they had their distinctiveness, which was that they had their hat band on the other side. The hat band was on the right side. In general, many one of the distinctive forms of, of, of Hasidic dress became, for Kabbalistic reasons, that they had the coat buttons were buttoned right over left as opposed to left over right. And because they did it for a Kabbalistic reason, that the right has to be stronger, so that became a, a symbolic form of, of, of their dress. So in Vizhnitz, one of the Vizhnitz Rebbe's had noticed that a priest, his hat, hat band was on the other side, so he wanted to be different than the priest, be different than the Christians. So he immediately switched his hat band to flip it around the other side. And this way it becomes a distinctive part of the uniform. I mentioned in another episode about the Skiver boots, and I said it incorrectly. So I got a hundred emails afterwards that the reason that the Skiver Hasidic dynasty wears boots is because one of them joined the married into bells and he wanted to cover over his white socks. So he put on boots. It became part of the Skiver uniform. So, 
So that's the clarification of that. But that again, it's another example. Eventually, what Hasidic interdistinctive dress is not to, only to separate from the outside world, but perhaps even more so today, especially, is to be a distinctive uniform for their specific tribe. It gives a strong sense of identity to separate themselves not from the outside world, but rather from a different Hasidic dynasty. And again, especially with urbanization, when there's, it's not that your area of Galicia, you're the only Hasidic group around and in town, so you don't need to separate yourself from, uh, 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 with an external expression like that from anyone else. But when urbanization happens, which uh, continues till today, so there's a hundred Hasidic groups in your community. So how do you look different? So you have to have these small nuances, so that makes it makes one look different. We have in in Lubavitch the Hasidic group. They the Rebbe, the last Rebbe, abandoned the Shrimal for a distinctive type of fedora, and that became the symbol of of the of that that dynasty, that that group, that community. One of the most unique uh, um, uh, Hasidic style dresses. And it's probably one of the best examples of non-Jewish influences on Jewish garb is Breslov Hasidic dress, or lack thereof Breslov Hasidic dress, which seems to be influenced by hippie or beatnik, Kaubach, or hipster, uh, you know, 1960s San Francisco communes type of uh, um, fashion, which, uh, which, you know, influences large segments of the Breslov community. Uh, till, not all of them, but uh, large segments of them uh, today. Uh, the, the it even goes as far as glasses in Ger in Skver, I believe. Also, there was certain times when the Rebbe made a a uh, a request or or decree uh, that everyone has to buy a specific type of glasses, and therefore that became one of the ways that uh, again a, a fashion statement of of this of this dynasty. Of course, also Natara Natalis, um, which would be a specifically Jewish development, as the non-Jews did not wear a talis. But it could even be something so simple as to even just wear a strimal. The Satmarov said that in his community, in the post-war, in the United States, has to start wearing strimals. Why start? Because in Hungary, as opposed to Poland, as opposed to Ukraine, as opposed to Russia, um, in Hungary, strimals were not so common among Hasidim before the war. And most Hasidim did not wear strimals. So he, but he said, post-war, we have to start wearing because it's a different situation. It's a, uh, it's a, it's, it's, we need more of a, a symbol. We need to show that we're different and it's, it's more modern, more urban, more the, the onslaught of American values and Western values and modern dress. It's more of a threat. So we, he, he wanted and he asked that everyone wears a strimal within the Satmar community. You know, and like I said, in the, we go from, we come full circle. You know, in the 1800s and 1700s, the Litvaks were wearing strimals. We have, we know people in the time of the Vilna Gain in Vilna wore strimals. The Nitziv, we have pictures, he wore a strimal. Why? Because it was a Russian winter dress. Until today, it's a Russian winter dress. If you go to Russia, especially among the aristocracy at that time. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, if we go just touch on female fashion just for a second in the famous or infamous, uh, Tsans Sadigura dispute of, uh, from 1869 to 1876. Uh, between the Divrei Chaim of Tzans and the Tzadikim of the Sadigura dynasty. So one of the aspects of the dispute was the, was the, uh, fashion accepted in, by the women in the Sadigura community, even in the Rebbe's families, to wear what was called then a, a crinoline or a hoop skirt and, uh, and the Divrei Chaim and shaitels also, wigs. That was, that was a big issue then as well. Um, and the, 
the Rechaim said that, that that was inappropriate. It's not Sneas, and you're following the non-Jewish fashion. And, uh, you know, the it becomes a big part of the cherem that the Rechaim placed on the Sadigur dynasty and on the Tzidikim of Sadigur. So the way their wives dress with this crinoline or hoop skirt, whatever it is, is a big issue. And it has to be removed. It can't be a, a Jewish dress. If we move away from Chassidim just for a few minutes, is we go to Yerushalayim, the old Yishuv, Sephardic dress. Um, we have uh, the way that the Ashkenazim were able to come into Yerushalayim in the early 1800s was only by disguising themselves as in, in, in Sephardic dress because Ashkenazim were not allowed to live in Yerushalayim because there was a whole issue with the the, uh, the Arab landlords when, when the Chassid came in 1700 and, and they were in debt and they didn't want any European Jews coming anymore. The Sephardic Jews paid the rent on time. They were also businessmen, they were more reliable, um, but uh, the Ashkenazim, they didn't like them, they didn't want them. So when, when the Ashkenazim tried to resettle Yerushalayim, they had to adopt the Sephardic dress to sneak in, and that became Yerushalmi fashion. Eventually that became traditional Yerushalmi fashion, even though its origins were, in, were copied off of their Sephardic brothers. You know, the, the distinctive Sephardic dress for hundreds of years in many countries, in Israel and Yerushalayim also, was the Tarbush, which is also called the Fez, and the Jalabiya. In Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire, that was, that was non-Jewish dress, that was Muslim dress. The Tarbush was a red hat that was worn, and, and, uh, the Jalabiya was the long uh, coat, the Glima in Hebrew, the, the long, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, like a robe type of a coat. And this, this brings the idea of, of immig- immigrants. When you come from one country and you come, to the United States, to Israel, to, to Palestine at the time, to change from the previous fashion and to adopt the local fashion, that's something that takes time and, and not always is it done so easily. In fact, um, it's an interesting story. The rabbis in, in Ottoman Palestine during World War I, Sephardic rabbis I'm talking about, in the Sephardic community, you know, so people had come from Syria, from Iraq, from Turkey. Uh, they were living in Yerushalayim. So there was a military draft. So there was a deferment for rabbis. And rabbis wore a distinctive type of glima, certain distinctive jalabiya with a sash, with a certain type of tarbush. So they they got a deferment. So what happens? Everyone started to put those on because they wanted that military deferment. The Ottomans they weren't they weren't uh, they weren't dumb, so they saw that everyone's starting to wear it, so they did away with the rabbinic deferment. So the rabbis had to go into hiding, they tried to escape, a whole story. Um, which is interesting because in World War II, in before and during the in the 19, early 1900s, the 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 yeshiva boys wore gray hats, and the simple working men laborers wore caps, kapetchkes, uh, like kasket. They wore a, a simple hat, and the rabbis wore black hats. The only only ones who wore black hats were rabbis. So when, when there are certain rabbis who, when they were escaping from the Nazis at the beginning of the war, from the Soviets, in order to disguise themselves, they would get a gray hat so that they wouldn't look like a rabbi, because only a rabbi would be, sometimes rabbis were at higher risk, so they wanted to be, uh, they disguised themselves by wearing a gray hat. Now the Musser yeshivas in Lithuania, the, from the Musser movement, the Slabatka, and, and even other ones, and, and Mir, and, 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 and Tells, and Many yeshivas, they adopted modern European fashionable dress as a principle, as part of their educational platform. To, 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 the, the yeshiva boy should look, aside from Navardic, they, they did not do that. So when Slabatka in 1924 moved to Yerushalayim, they, before they went to Hebron, 
they um, they didn't fit in because um, because the Rishalmis were wearing very conservative long coats, long beards, and here these dandies were coming into town wearing very fashionable, clean-shaven hats and canes and ties, and they looked like maskilim. They looked like uh, they looked like they were very modern. So they did not fit into Yushalayim, and the Yushalmis kind of chased them out of town, and that's eventually why they settled in, in Hebron. Um, so the, the, um, the, uh, the, the idea of wearing long or short, uh, the, the, like they said, the, the yeshivas at that point went to short jackets because it was more modern and accepted in European society and became a question of rabbinic attire, and especially in the Lithuanian world to wear a long coat, which eventually was a frock, which is another knockoff of a non-Jewish dress in German aristocracy in the 19th century. They wore frocks. That's where it came from. German Hamburg and, and a frock. They're both German non-Jewish uh, fashion. That became rabbinic attire, whereas the common man wore a vest or a jacket, a short jacket. And till today, there was there are Rosh Yeshiva who made a statement out of, 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 of not wearing a long jacket, not wearing a frock. No, I mean, in Israel, of course, everyone's running to wear a frock. That, uh, you know, as soon as they can get a position to wear a frock. But there are, were Rashi Yeshiva. I remember my Rebbe in the mirror, Bashar Eli, he, he did not, uh, does not wear a frock and Rameir Stern or you know, big, big people of Palm, uh, blessed memory of Feinstein. There were people who they did, they chose not to wear the rabbinic attire. In fact, in the mirror, most of the, uh, Rebbeim, they did, they wore short jackets. There was one, there was one, uh, Rebbe in the mirror who, who uh, only wore a frock when he would go to to the United States, and um, when the Archikala came, the alumni came to study in the yeshiva, so he would give his shear to the Archikala since they were visiting from the United States. He would wear his frock, so they said to him, "You're not an American now." So he says, "No, I kept my passport in my pocket." So it's 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 part of the uh, the rabbinic distinctive attire. I remember I was doing a segment on on um, on great photographs with the legendary. Gedolim photographer Moshe Yarmish, who has the best pictures of the great Gedolim Yisrael of the last generation. So his he has a very famous picture of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein when he was when he was uh, in up in the mountains during the summer on vacation. He's ca- caught him in when he was wearing his pajama shirt. He was relaxing, and uh, and he said so. He so Moshe Yarmish told me he said there are people who think that Rabbi Moshe was wearing a blue shirt. He wasn't wearing a blue shirt. He was his pajamas, so um, so the uh, that became uh, that became a, a thing. You know, the, the uh, it's it's part of the you know the, the yeshiva guy when he goes to, when he goes to work, he's going to transfer into blue shirt. I had a friend who was in the mirror. He told me when he's leaving the mirror, he's going straight from the airport to buy blue shirts because he he's now he's going to be going to be part of the workforce. He needs to have a work, blue shirts. He can't be wearing a white shirt. So fashion because. Uh, a very strong statement. I got about a third of the way through the material that I prepared, so I think we'll have to go to part two. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sponsorships, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean uh, or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.